0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Her Head and Films Podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal musings, my personal thoughts and feelings about cinema. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name is Caitlin. I consider myself a writer, a blogger, I'm someone who's a dreamer, I love literature, I love art, um, I love poetry, um... And I also have a really mad, burning, furious desire, not desire, but love um, for cinema, especially art house and world cinema and classic cinema. So I created this podcast because I live in a rural area in the south and I don't really, I don't have art house cinema, I don't have... There's not any kind of cinema culture or literary culture where I live. I'm just very isolated and I'm very alone. And I needed an outlet to talk about these films that really haunt me. And that are very important to me. And so this podcast is really a labor of love. And it's about love. It's about a love of cinema. And so that's what I try to share in every episode of this podcast. I've done... I think 20 now. And so it's been a really amazing journey. <clears throat> I do have a Patreon for this podcast. You can find it at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. Um, I do have to pay to keep the podcast going. So if you'd like to be a supporter and help sustain it, I'd really appreciate it. There are all kinds of rewards at, at different levels. And the levels are really affordable. You can um, you get access to a a mini episode that i do that's like uh you know 10 to 15 minutes long and that's for just $1 a month and but then it goes up from there and you can recommend a movie to me that i'll review you can um you can vote in polls so that you can decide what i review you can get a postcard so there's all kinds of great goodies that are involved and at one level i give a shout out on each episode uh and so I'd like to give a shout-out to supporters Carolyn and to Michelle. So thank you both very much for supporting the podcast and sustaining it. I really do appreciate it. So that's patreon.com slash films and you can check that out. So thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, Michelle. Today's episode is about Abbas Kiarostami's 1997 Palme d'Or winning uh, Taste of Cherry. It's a really great film, it's one of my favorites, and I definitely have a personal connection to it that I want to talk about, And um, but first, at the beginning of each podcast, sometimes I like to meander a bit and talk about more general things, and I want to talk about why I watched Taste of Cherry this week, and I watched it a year ago, in 2016 because Apis Kuristami died and I've actually been really into Kiristami's work lately um, because it's the end of June 2017 and so it's around his birthday and then um, when was his birthday? June 22nd yeah so it's like the end of June but his his death day is July 4th and so I've just been thinking a lot about his work and watching his work but i was i loved his movies even before he died but when he died july 4th 2016 i hadn't seen taste of cherry and so that was when i decided to watch it and it was a really profound film for me and i decided to rewatch it recently not just because of his birthday and you know and all of that but i've been struggling with depression i've struggled with depression my pretty much my entire life even when i was a child i don't think i had a language for it or a word for it but i felt it i would cry myself to sleep for no reason i would feel this really deep sense of despair for no reason for you know nothing bad had happened to me when i was like 10 years old and um and as i've gotten older and i'm 27 now and i've gone through a lot then My father died in 2006, and that was a really difficult experience for me, and I would say that that loss, and I was 16 at the time, which is, I think, a really tender age for the most part, um, I mean, other girls had their, what, their sweet 16, and I was burying my father, so it's, it's this shock to your system, I think, and, um, and I've just gone through a well, lot, I've gone, I, I've lost a lot of people cuz my dad died and then my grandmother died and then my uncle died with all within a 3 year period. I've been through poverty, you know, financial struggles. Um, I recently lost my house um, that I had lived in for my entire life, so about 26 years. So a lot's happened to me especially in the last year or two I've had to move to another state and start another life and so I'll get into all that eventually maybe in another episode of the trauma and how difficult that's been but lately I've just been feeling a lot of depression I think understandably just about living in a new place feeling like I don't have roots feeling alone um struggling in a lot of ways so but i've always had depression it's always been with me it's just been this constant sorrow and despair and um... i always feel like there's this glass wall between me and the world that there's something that keeps me separate from other people and from the world and That things that other people can do very easily, people who don't have depression or anxiety the way that I do, who can just function in a normal way. Or maybe they hide it, you know, maybe they do have depression and anxiety, but they're just able to cover it, you know, and cope with it better. Or maybe they have, obviously they have resources. I, I am not able to go to a therapist. I'm not able to get any kind of help, really. The only time I had any kind of psychological help was when I was in college a few years ago. That was the first time I had health insurance in my life, really. And I got to go to, like, a grief counselor for a little while. And that was helpful. And I was on an antidepressant for a little while. But, of course, once I left college and I didn't have insurance and I was struggling to find a job, I didn't have any way to keep that up, you know. So, um that's just the reality we live in and i think it's important when we talk about depression we want to talk about it as this chemical imbalance and i guess it is i mean i'm not someone to speak about this i'm not an expert but i also think that depression is very much connected to social inequality to to forces that are outside of us that i don't think it's always within us you know that all of it is that chemical imbalance i think Certain experiences you go through can activate it. I think it's that nature, that what nature versus nurture, or sort of, you know, the biological versus the environmental. I think it's both actually, sort of, that are interdependent with each other. Because when my father died, it it, it exacerbated all of that depression and anxiety. And when I didn't have the support I needed and I didn't have access to resources or access to any kind of help, that worsened everything. I was agoraphobic for a while. I was unable to leave my house. I was just terrified and and I'm someone that lives with fear a lot. Like I just feel an immense amount of fear about life and about the world and I've tried to take steps to cope with it. I meditate, you know, I write a lot, I listen to music, I watch films, you know, in many ways I've used art as a coping mechanism to deal with my depression, and, but it's still there, you know, it's, it's something that even when the environmental issues change, I'm still depressed, so like I say, it's this interdependence of this relationship, and um, you know, every day I wake up, and I don't want to be me, and I think that's really sad, but it's the truth, and it's how I feel that, especially when I go through these depressive episodes, like I am now, where I just, I just feel empty, and I feel hollow, and I just feel like the depression almost, like, cannibalizes me, it just takes everything I could have offered, or anything I could have been, and just completely destroys it, and, it's it's hard to put into words you know there's this not there I mean it's hard for me to admit but it's important for me to admit that when my father died I stopped wanting to be alive and I live with that even now but there are days that I wake up and I don't want to be here I don't want to be dead I'm terrified of death But I don't want to be here in my life the way it is without him. And, you know, like I said, I wake up every day and I want to be someone else. I just don't want to be me with the depression and the anxiety and the grief and the hurt. And, um, so I, I, I call it not there-ness. Like, you're here, but you're not you know and you're going through the motions in many ways and sometimes i can't even go through the motions um i i hate i hate chit chat and i i have a i have a hard time connecting with people honestly and i wouldn't i've never tried to commit suicide but i have thought about it and i've certainly said at times that I just would like to get all this over with, and I'd like it to be over with um <clears throat> I'm just tired of wait, I'm gonna take some water <clears throat> I would just like it to all be over with in a way, you know, or I'd like to go back in time to. A time in my life when everything was better and and I was happy so that's the context in which I watched this film and it's the context in which I approach it as a person who struggles with depression who struggles with life and with wanting to be alive sometimes um, this review will have spoilers in it, and I will talk about various issues issues in it various various plot points. so if you haven't seen the film, I do want to warn you of that that there will be spoilers um and on to the film, I think Art house cinema can get a bad rap. I think people can see Art house and they can feel very intimidated and they can feel that it's a world that is dominated by academics and scholars and very erudite people and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm absolutely in awe of film scholars and film writers who are able to dedicate their lives to studying film and who know the intricacies of it and who know all the big theoretical theories and and all of that. And they're amazing and they're able to go to a university and they're able to study it and they're able to talk about, you know, all kinds of theories. Um and they know that language and they have access to it and I am not knocking that in any way but I think that world I think it can be very intimidating for somebody especially like me who is from a working class, rural background who has not studied film in a university or in an academic setting who just has a love of film and may not always have the right language or the right specialization to talk about it and if anything something that I'd like this podcast to really be is to show people that art house cinema or world cinema does not have to be intimidating it doesn't have to be scary it doesn't have to be something that is alien to you or disconnected from you that really if I can and I hate this phrase oh if I can do it you can do it but I like to think that, you know, you don't hear my accent a lot on NPR. I am a, I'm a southerner, I'm a southern person. You don't hear any kind of accents out in the world like in mainstream media really. You don't hear a New York accent that much or anyone with a particular accent or dialect in the United States. You know, there is this certain culture I think that gets centered in our media landscape And people who are outside of that, people who might sound like me, or might sound like somebody from the Bronx, or, you know, anywhere like that, we kind of get shut out, in a way. Like, where does our voice fit, you know? And I want to create a space that celebrates sort of the amateur, I guess, or the self-taught autodidact person who's coming to films... And it's really fallen in love with them. And wants to talk about them in an accessible, down-to-earth, personal way. In a personal, subjective way. And that's really important to me. And so I hope that when people listen to these podcasts and they think, well, if she, living in nowhere USA, you know, if she can understand these films, if she can articulate them in an accessible way then maybe there's nothing to be scared of and maybe art house cinema is something that i can explore because i do worry sometimes when i do these podcasts i worry a lot and i have a lot of insecurity about my voice about how i sound about because i know that's weighed down with a lot of things understandably that the south is has a huge amount, has a, a terrible, bloody history in terms of racism, in terms of violence, and I I struggle with that every day living down here. Um. It's it's real, you know. There's Confederate flags flying where I live. Okay, so, you know, I I live with this. I I know. I know the worst parts of the South. I'm constantly in conflict with it, and so. But I, I get insecure about my voice. I get insecure about am I intelligent enough? Am I worthy? You know, to talk about these really big films. Um, I worry about it all the time. But I just pull through it, and I just tell myself, Caitlin, you you have a voice, and you have a right to share it and to talk about these films. You may talk about them in a way that's different. That not everybody is used to in a very raw and personal way. But that's okay. You know, I I just tell myself that. So I think Art House can get a bad rap in terms that people can equate it with pretentiousness. With, you know, and I'm not going to name directors. But just with a very cold, distant sort of style. Or like a very difficult gimmicky style. And I would argue that Abbas Curastami is really the opposite of that. That he is a director who is very warm and inviting and, and humane and humorous. and But not sacrificing any kind of innovation or formal experimentation. He's someone who is very i would say playful almost in the way he does film coming up with interesting ways to tell stories and injecting really innovative techniques in his filmmaking so Kiristami was born in 1940 he died in 2016 he was 76 years old he was from tehran in iran and he was part of the iranian new cinema movement and um Wikipedia says that that movement included the use of poetic dialogue and allegorical storytelling, dealing with political and philosophical issues. He also, another hallmark of his cinema, is that he used a lot of amateur actors, untrained actors, which reminds me of Robert Bresson, the French director. He also used amateur, untrained actors. A lot of Kiristami's films focus on life in rural Iranian villages. Um, some of his films are about children. He, he did some really beautiful films about children. Called One is Where is My Friend's House and that was really good. Um, a lot of his films take place in vehicles and people driving and driving along the landscape. He can ask really big questions, I think, in his work about fiction and reality. um, About human relationships, about connection. and um, So the basic plot of Taste of Cherry is that a man is driving around. um, And he's in search of someone who will bury him after he commits suicide. He's not asking someone to kill him he wants to take sleeping pills he wants to go sit in a hole in the ground that he's dug and he wants to die and he wants someone to come and put dirt over him after he's killed himself and he picks up over the course of the film three men who he asks to do this job he asks strangers he doesn't ask family members or friends it's not clear why and we're never told why he wants to commit suicide his name is mister batty the first man he picks up is a soldier he's very young and as soon as mister batty asks him to do it he basically runs out of the vehicle it's like a jeep or an suv and um... he tries to appeal to the men's economics and saying oh well You'll you'll get a lot of money for doing this. And he is offering money to them. To do this job. But the young man. The young soldier. He's a soldier. Uh, runs away. He's not having it. Um, it's actually sort of a funny scene a little bit. The second man that Mr. Batty picks up. Is a seminary student. In Islam. And um it's with this man that mister batty starts to articulate why exactly he wants to commit suicide Well, we don't get a specific reason we don't know if he has a terminal illness we don't know if he's depressed um, it's really not clear but he does explain a bit why he doesn't wanna live and so he tells the seminary student he says I wanna free myself from this life and he also talks about really the the limits of empathy he says to the seminary student he says you can't feel what i feel you might have empathy you might have sympathy for what i feel but you cannot know what i live with and i think that's an important discussion to have because it's true you know I'm not the first, and I'm not the last person who will lose their father or lose a parent at 16 years old or any age. But it's still my father and not yours. It's still my life and not yours. It's my memories. And I have to bear that every day that I wake up. You know? You didn't know him, you didn't love him, you didn't hold him you didn't talk to him i did and he's gone forever because i'm an atheist i'm i'm not a religious person so that's a big part of my grief as well is that i don't believe that there is any reunion with him i believe that he is gone forever and until there's any kind of proof of of anything else that's what i'm going to go with and i'm going to believe um And that's a difficult truth to live with. It's very difficult. You know maybe if I believed that I would see him again. Or believed in heaven. Maybe I would be able to cope better. But I can't. I can't believe that. Um, So the seminary student is really laying forth. um, An argument against suicide. That is rooted in religious doctrine. And any religion that you encounter, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know, all of them, you know, suicide is considered a sin. And so I think maybe that's why suicide has become such a taboo topic. That people don't want to talk about it because it's a difficult subject. People don't understand suicide, why you would want to end your own life. And so we're not even allowed to have a discussion about it. And that's difficult you see sort of the right to die movement now where people with terminal illnesses are fighting for the right to commit suicide or you see a physician assisted suicide and there's been various documentaries about it I think frontline did one frontline on PBS and it talked about sort of this secret network of people that were helping other people commit suicide um, because it's illegal in most states. And they would take like a helium tank to them. And it was it was a very interesting documentary to watch. At the same time, you know, disability activists have written about how assisted suicide could be used in really dangerous ways. To where if you're poor, um, a- instead of offering you treatment, instead of trying to increase your quality of life... Oh, let's just have them commit suicide. Let's just, you know, so there's, there's both sides of that debate. And I think when you talk about suicide or you talk about people in despair, people in pain, I don't think you can fail to talk about the societal conditions that can create that. And so I know a lot of people are probably proponents of suicide and, you know, assistive physician suicide. And I do think people should have control over their bodies and they have the right to, I think, to make decisions in their lives. But what about people who don't have access to therapy or don't have access to mental illness help? Would that make a difference to them when they're in a suicidal state if they had access to therapy or to medication? I know some people are anti-medication, but I think it can be helpful to some people so what are the conditions in which people are committing suicide not all people commit suicide because depression sometimes they commit suicide because of economic issues because of i don't know things outside of them i remember them saying that after the 2008 recession there was a huge uptick in suicides around the world that all these people were killing themselves because they lost their business Or they lost their job and they couldn't provide for their families. So suicide is a really complex issue. And people do it for a variety of reasons. And the people who are left behind struggle with the shame that society puts on them. Because there is a stigmatization that happens to the family and to the person who commits suicide. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's right. I know it's hard to deal with someone that commits suicide and the thoughts that go through the mind of Did they not love me? did they not care about me? Why would they do this? It's a very difficult, difficult thing, and so I guess for that reason, we don't like to talk about it, but what I liked about this film is that it was giving space to to talk about it to to present these two arguments. The seminary students argument and the third man that he picks up that i'll talk about gives an argument for staying alive the seminary students argument is based on religious grounds it's a sin you shouldn't do it but mr batty makes a counter argument and he says yes it is a suicide it is, suicide is a sin but so is unhappiness when you're unhappy you hurt other people and isn't that also a sin to hurt the people that you love mr batty also says that he doesn't think that god would want people to suffer in the way that he is suffering and he thinks that that's why suicide exists in the first place he believes that it's there for people to use so obviously mr batty is someone who is in a great deal of pain and anguish something has ruptured this man's life we don't know what it is we did he lose someone he loves does he have an illness we have no idea but he is absolutely you know in a crisis and no longer wants to to live of course the seminary student says all of that's true in a way but i don't think he he doesn't use those words but he agrees that unhappiness probably is a sin you know and hurting people but he says that it's still wrong it's still against Islam and the Quran and so he's not going to help him so Mr. Batty he picks up a third man named Mr. Begari he's an elderly man he works at the Natural History Museum in taxidermy which is very interesting because um, taxidermy is is very much about death And I thought that was an interesting detail. He's really the only man of the three who asks Mr. Batty why he wants to die. The other men had asked what the job was, but they had never asked, well, why do you want to kill yourself? And, of course, Mr. Batty doesn't tell him. Mr. Begari shares his own story of being suicidal himself. He had gone to the length of taking a rope to a tree, and he's going to hang himself... But in the process of trying to get the rope up on the tree, he sees mulberries, he eats the mulberries, he noticed the sun rising, I think he heard children playing, and he decided in that moment that he wanted to live. So Mr. Begari is someone who obviously has a lot of sympathy for Mr. Batty and what Mr. Batty's going through, but he articulates the reasons why Mr. Batty should want to stay alive. He also tells Mr. Batty uh, an an argument that I think a lot of depressed depressed people hear. And that argument is, well, everybody hurts. Everybody goes through difficult things. Everybody's in pain. You just have to get through it and you have to keep living. You need to change your outlook. A lot of the refrains from people are very individualistic. They focus a lot on... Oh, you can't change life, you can't change what happens in life, but you can, you can't control life, but you can control your reaction to the various things that happen to you. And it's a very individual-oriented thing of, well, if you're depressed or you're sad, it's on you, and you need to change your outlook. I mean, this is the whole basis of the self-help movement, Don't change the world. Changing the world is too hard. It's too difficult. Change yourself. And he says it. He's not saying it in a malicious way. He He's being nice about it. He's just saying, you know, try to look at the bright side of things. Try to remember the good things about life. And that's a, you know, that's what you hear a lot from people. And, um... And then he goes on to list the things that Mr. Batty should live for. And this is where the title of of the film comes from. And he says the sunrise, the moon, the stars, drinking water from a spring, the taste of cherries. So these are the things that he believes Mr. Batty should try to stay alive for. And we don't know if Mr. Batty's married or if he has children. Um... He may be a very lonely man. I had the sense that he was very lonely. I had the sense that he was sort of really isolated in some way, I think. Um, But when Mr. Begari was listing these things, I got to thinking about a song by Lucinda Williams. I'm just going to take another drink of water. I got to thinking about this song, and Lucinda Williams wrote it, Emmylou Harris, Emmylou Harris covered it on her album Wrecking Ball that came out in the 1990s, and I really prefer the Emmylou Harris version, so if you look for the song, I would go with her version. I'm a huge fan of Emmylou Harris, and Wrecking Ball is a really important album in my life, Actually when I'm in a depressed state, when I'm really struggling, I tend to listen to that album because of the songs on it and I just find it a really big comfort. But the song is called Sweet Old World and it's basically the narrator I guess speaking to a suicidal person or someone who has committed suicide. And the song lists all the things that the person who committed suicide or will commit suicide will lose when they die it's it's a very life-affirming song it's a reminder of the beauty of life the small moments that bring us happiness or joy so the chorus goes see what you lost when you left this world this sweet old world and then the verses the breath from your own lips the touch of fingertips a sweet and tender kiss the sound of a midnight train wearing someone's ring someone calling your name somebody so warm cradled in your arm didn't you think you were worth anything millions of us in love promises made good your own flesh and blood looking for some truth dancing with no shoes the beat the rhythm the blues The pounding of your heart's drum together with another one. Didn't you think anyone loved you? And so when Mr. Begari is listing, you know, the the moon, the stars, the taste of cherries, that was something I thought about. That song, Sweet Old World by Lucinda Williams. He's trying to remind Mr. Batty of life. That there is... There's a case to be made for staying alive, but Mr. Batty isn't moved by that argument he He still wants to die so the you know Mr. Bagary says that he will help him, and Mr. Bagary has a sick child, so the money will help him. but I think he does it out of a sense of wanting to help another person and wanting. To do something that's humane. So, in the end, Mr. Batty, we have two camps here. We have this conflict between life and death. We have Mr. Batty articulating why he wants to die, and then we have Mr. Begarry trying to give him reasons to stay alive. And that's sort of the central conflict of the film. The film looks at suicide in a serious mature way it gives space to both of these arguments of why somebody would want to live and why somebody would want to die and I don't think it judges either one and Kiristami himself said that this film or several of the films that he made he sort of considers it part of a trilogy um maybe with maybe through the olive trees and life and and nothing else he might have said, with those two, but he said they're all about the preciousness of life and and i would I would agree that this film it's a very beautiful film it's a, I think I wanted maybe to watch it, to maybe be reminded of why life is worth living that sometimes you can forget or sometimes you can just get so lost in your own pain that you can forget and I've started this thing that I do every day where I try to list at least three things that I'm grateful for and I know this sounds like so self-help you know sort of you know but it's just for me you know it's not something I share with anyone else even if it's just writing down my mom my dog you know breathing or something you know that's i just try to do that i try to remind myself that even though i'm struggling even though things are hard and i've lost so much that there is there are things to be alive for you know and sometimes i'll put poetic things like oh the sunrise today or oh the weather was really beautiful and i find nature really comforting at times um so, it becomes sort of this constant trying to remind yourself you know that life is worth living, and of course, I put Kiristami's films yesterday because <laughs> I'm watching his films right now, and so he's something I'm definitely grateful for, or you know a great book or or a, an album you know that's out or 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 something like that so art is a really important thing for me um and it helps me survive and that's what this podcast is about like I do I I watch films it's not an intellectual exercise for me I'm not writing a book about films you know I'm just watching them because I love them because they save me because because it's life cinema is life for me Literature is life for me this this is I'm not playing around you know I'm not this is serious for me. I take cinema seriously. It's not a career it's you know I'm not getting anything out of this. <laughs> I'm just trying to share my love of a film and and to talk about why I love films and um yeah, that's what this podcast is about. That's why it's so personal. The films and my life are intertwined. And they always will be. And that's how I can't talk about a film without talking about my life. About talking about why a film touches me or moves me. So in the end, and and the ending has always haunted me. And I think it's a very ambiguous ending. But it shows Mr. Batty lying in his own grave. he's staring at the moon in the sky that the clouds are are scudding across, and he's still alive i I assume he's taken the sleeping pills and he's waiting for them to um for them to take effect. you know but um and then the screen goes black maybe to simulate death. I'm not sure. And then it cuts all of a sudden to behind-the-scene footage of the film being made. So you see Kiristami with the camera. You see the actor who played Mr. Batty smoking a cigarette. So obviously maybe this is like a meta moment. You know, a nod that this is a film. That, you know, the story is not real. That all of this is staged, and all of it's fiction, but Kiristami himself, in an interview in 1997, talked about this, he said that, um, he said that filmmakers use lies to talk about the truth, that, you know, you might put a family on screen, and none of them are related, and none of them know each other, but you're trying to tell the truth about a family, and so... I would think that maybe the ending is a nod to that, is saying, mm, obviously this is not real, but it feels real when you're watching it in many ways. And I see an ambiguity in the ending with Mr. Baddie, like, mm. I don't know if he dies, I mean, what if the sleeping pills don't work? What if he wakes up in the morning? What if... Yeah. So I don't know. I I think he was very determined to die. But I think there's a difference between wanting to die or thinking about dying. And then doing it. Because I've thought about it. I've had moments where I just wanted it to be over. And I don't want to go on. And i don't think it's getting better you know people say that all the time it gets better it gets better it'll be okay and i don't think it does get better necessarily i think as time goes on i think things can get more difficult i think you lose more people like i did i think um... certain things grind you down like poverty like um, you know financial struggle is is very difficult not having access to resources like i have definitely felt that over the past few years my mental health has gotten worse that i i struggle even more with anxiety and depression especially anxiety <clears throat> that just small tasks can be really <clears throat> small tasks can be really difficult for me so i don't know if they necessarily get better really You just, you just do what you can to survive, you know? Kiristami also said something in that interview I'm quoting. He said, I think a good film is one that has a lasting power, and you start to reconstruct it right after you leave the theater. And I would definitely agree with that. And I would also say that a great film is one in which... sorry my throat's messed up i would say a great film is also one in which you it it keeps living after you watch it that it lives on in your mind and you think about what happened to the characters or you just think about them in some capacity and you can't stop thinking about them so i just I think this this is a very powerful film, and it's about suicide and it's about life and it's about death and Those are very big issues and I think Kuristami confronts them in a very mature way, and he gives Mr. Batty a sense of autonomy he gives him dignity and humanity he allows him to articulate why he doesn't want to be alive anymore and takes that seriously rather than just patronizing him and saying, oh, well, it'll be okay, things will get better. Um, And Mr. Begari, while he tries to convince Mr. Batty to live and gives him all those examples like the taste of cherries, in the end he respects Mr. Batty's decision you know that Mr. Batty wants to do this he res- he respects that you know when you google taste of cherry the first result at least for me was a Roger Ebert review and I love Roger Ebert um, but he hated this film he gave it one star And it's very interesting. I usually agree with Roger Ebert about a lot of his reviews, but I totally disagree with him on this one. He thought the film was very pretentious. He didn't like the ending that shows the the behind-the-scenes footage. He also, his big issue with the film seemed to be the lack of information about Mr. Batty. That Mr. Batty is very mysterious. We don't know why he wants to die, as I said before. We barely know anything about his life. For me, that was a strength of the film. That mystery. I think it's the genius of the film. Because I think in a way, you can project things onto Mr. Batty. That he becomes, I think, almost a universal figure. In that he is... he is someone who is struggling with with pain with suffering and with despair and i think a lot of us can relate to that and a lot of us have had that in our own lives when we didn't want to live or we struggled to find meaning or we struggled to find um a reason to go on living after something really catastrophic happened to us so when i watched mr batty I brought to him my whole history of losing my father. <clears throat> my history of of depression and anxiety and struggling to live, to hold on to life. And I think somebody else would bring other things to Mr. Batty and perhaps project those things onto him. And I think... I just haven't seen another film that really looks at suicide and looks at at a person who is just so at the end of their rope, right? Someone who just cannot go on. And we don't know why he can't go on. He says he wants to free himself from life. He says that he's in pain and he's suffering. Perhaps he is hurting the other people around him and his last act is to try to find someone to bury him and he sort of puts the people he asks in a bit of a moral quandary even though he's not asking them to kill him he's asking them to assist him in some way and i think it's a very moving thing that he he's asking for help you know although It's not a cry for help. Often when we talk about suicide we'll talk about people looking for help or salvation. Or they're doing a cry for help. And that's not what he's doing. He just wants another human being to make sure that he gets a proper burial. And if you think about the the history of humanity. Burial is very important. Having a body to bury is a crucial part of of our mourning and our grieving processes. And if you think about families or people who don't have a body to bury. It's very devastating for them, rightfully, to not have the body. And now that I'm thinking about it and talking about it, I think he must be alone. Because... Was my mom's phone going off? Um, Because I think if he had a family. Then he would not want them to go on living without having his body. Because they have no idea where he's going to bury himself. So I almost feel like he must be alone in a way. Because why would he deny his family his body? But at the same time he could have a family and he doesn't want his family to find his body and take on the shame of suicide that maybe it would stigmatize his family if he if it gets out that he committed suicide and he may not want them to find the body and how traumatic that could be for them perhaps this way he just disappears and they never know what happened to him i'd actually never thought about this until i was talking about it just now it could go either way really couldn't it but he's obviously very it's very important to him to be buried and he knows that he can't ask a family member or a friend to do it and so he's looking for a stranger to do it but it's still a profoundly human moment of him wanting to be buried and looking for someone to help him do that and it's mr bagary who's able to do that probably because of his own suicide attempt that he has much more maybe compassion for mr batty and what he's going through and he wants to help him he wants to assist him it's a profoundly human moment it's it's a profoundly generous thing i think to say yes i will help you even though I don't agree with your, with your, with what you're doing. And I've tried to talk you out of it. I'm going to respect your wishes. And help you do this. Of course. That's a very controversial thing. I mean. If, if somebody was to do that here in the US. They would probably be charged with like a crime for doing that. And I wonder if the same would be said about Iran. That if someone helped another person person in any way even if you didn't kill them but you go and you bury the body or or put earth on it I wonder if you would be considered uh, if that would be a crime under the law and there's this really amazing scene in the film where Mr. Batty goes to like a construction site the landscape is a big deal in this film. First of all, let me say that. The landscape is almost another character. It's this very rugged area in Iran. I'm not sure what part of the country it's in. It's in a very dry, almost desert section of the country. There's no there's no grass really. There's not a lot of trees. And the film really sort of luxuriates in that landscape and shows it often. It's beautiful, but it's brutal. Um it reminded me a lot of the Island in La Ventura by Michelangelo Antonioni. It's sort of this vast, often empty, peopleless landscape that really swallows individuals whole. It has these serpentine roads in it as well. Like when Mr. Batty gets out of the car and he's just in the landscape. He's just swallowed by it. It's just massive. And um and there's this beautiful light about the film too. I have to talk about this. It's very dreamy. It's like rose colored. I don't know if Kiristami used like special a special lens to get that look. But it suffuses and permeates the entire film. This this rose colored light. Um and a lot of the film takes place around dusk. So it's this dusky light, you know? And I just thought it was gorgeous and I i don't know if I've ever seen that light on film. I've seen the light in real life here in the south sometimes when the sun is setting. There's been moments when the whole sky will turn pink and there will be this pink glow to the world and it's always very moving to see it and always very beautiful. And I think I've tried to take pictures of it before but it doesn't really translate to the camera. And it was really beautiful the way Kiristami captured that. And there was this scene in the film, as I mentioned a little while ago. There's like construction going on. And, and these diggers are digging the earth. They're digging the earth up. And of course it's a nod, I think, to what, what Mr. Batty is going to do later. Where he's going to be buried in the earth. And I think it's a reminder on the part of Kuristami to us. That in the end that's what we are. We're dirt and we're dust. And we return to the earth. And there's a point at which. And throughout this film but especially at this point. Mr. Batty almost starts to fade. He almost starts to already start to disappear. Um, when they're digging the earth up. You can see his shadow against the ground. And it reminded me of in Greek, in ancient Greece, that when people died, I think they were referred to as shades. And in the underworld, they were shades. They were like shadows. And at some point, the dirt is kicked up. And there's all this dirt and dust. There's like a cloud of it. And it completely envelops Mr. Batty. And you can barely see him. He's just... He's almost gone. He's, he's completely obscured by this cloud of dirt. And then later in the film, at the very end, he goes back to his apartment. But of course, Kiristami completely withholds any kind of personal information about Mr. Batty. And we see him from outside the apartment. There's a tree, there's the window that frames Mr. Batty, and there's curtains. There's like these gauzy window curtains. and so mr batty is like a blur and so even then he seems to already be disappearing before our eyes and that's just i think some stylistic choices that kiristami made um to convey that you know so i think that's really all i have to say about this film um I think it's one of those films that it either hits you or it doesn't you know with Roger Ebert it was a miss and he thought it was very pretentious and very uh frustrating to watch and he didn't like it when I saw it a year ago I was very moved by it and then watching it a year later in June 2017 it it still moved me because of someone because I'm someone who struggles with depression and and, um, this is really a film about life and death, and I guess it is about the preciousness of life, as Kiristami said. I think when you watch the film and you see the beauty of it, at least at least that's something to remind you of of the beauty of life, that there can be moments of beauty and joy, but of course, that's not always enough and you don't know what other people are going through and what they're suffering and as he said to the seminary student you can't feel what I feel he has to endure whatever has happened to him whether it's an illness whether it's a loss of a loved one or whether it's just depression whether it's just maybe something cataclysmic didn't happen maybe he's just at a point in his life and he just doesn't see a point in going on or living And we don't know, we don't know the circumstances, and so that hole in the narrative, it, it allows us to fill it with something, to bring something of ourselves to the film, and to make those decisions for ourselves, you know, and you can project a lot of things onto Mr. Batty, as I have, obviously. And perhaps it's a very, it's an allegorical film, and other people would see it in more political terms, with a connection maybe with Iranian society, and I'm sure there's a reading to support that. I don't think there's any right or wrong when it comes to, I mean, as long as you can make your case and your argument, obviously, um... I think, as I said earlier, that art house cinema can get a bad rap, it can seem very pretentious, it can seem to be about people who have no connection to real life, but I think Abbas Kiarostami is really a gem, he's really a giant of cinema, and I think his films are the complete opposite of that, that they are, like I said, very warm and very humane, and But that doesn't mean, and and his stories can seem very simple. It's about a man driving around trying to find someone to bury him. But that doesn't mean it's not formally innovative. It doesn't mean it's not stylistically creative or interesting. It certainly is. And all his films are. He's very playful. He comes up with these very interesting stories. And he always tells stories in a very interesting way. In an innovative, creative way. Even experimental way, I would say, in some of his films. You know, sometimes bleeding bleeding together fact and fiction, blurring them, um, as he did at the end of, with this film. So he's someone that I think is very accessible f- for the common person, like me. And then he's also someone who I think the film buffs, and the, the film scholars, and... the academics the very erudite people can look at his films and and just really love them too i i think that's maybe the beauty of his work that he merges the simple and the complex and that they work on different levels for people you know that there's a lot to analyze and dissect about his films and then there's also just a lot of things to just enjoy and to take pleasure in and um i think that's why he's one of probably my top five directors i I mean kristoff kishlovsky is my number one forever and ever uh but i would say kiristami's definitely up there you know as well maybe number two maybe number three i don't know um and so i'm a big fan big fan of his work and this was a daunting film to take on for this podcast. I, I worried that I wouldn't do it justice, but all I can do is do my best. And so I really hope that I've helped you in some way or, or enriched your reading of the film or your experience of the film. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And, um, until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.